Last week, we left off with Paul proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection to some Greek philosophers at the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, in Athens. That was the end of chapter 17, and we're going to jump in right there, pick up where we left off. So if you have a Bible, you can open it there. The words will be on the screen in just a second. But let me ask a question, a two-part question before we get right into it. Here it is. Have you ever met um, someone, a Christian, who you've gotten to know them a little bit, you've listened to them, you've observed them, perhaps you've experienced them, and you thought to yourself, you know, you're, you're really quite serious about this Christianity stuff, but I'm not convinced that it's quite working for you. Like, you clearly know what you're supposed to believe, but in terms of that actually working out into like a real sort of life with actions and relationships and and other people, it seems like something's off. Um, Like, Jesus was this way, and you claim to be like Jesus, i.e. a Christian, but you there's, 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 quite, there's a disconnect. You know, your life doesn't quite line up with what, in my mind, a Christian is supposed to be like. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought to yourself, okay, and I know what, I'm, I, know what I think I believe. I know what I'm supposed to believe. I, but something seems to be slightly misaligned in my life. And you wonder to yourself, why isn't, why isn't this Jesus stuff working for me? Or I, I, feel like, I feel like perhaps I'm missing something. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus saved me. I've experienced him, his life. But for some reason, I feel like there's a slight disconnect when it comes to my actual experience of life. Have you ever asked yourself this question? What does it look like for Christianity to actually work in real life? And assuming it does work, what does that look like? How do we actually experience that as individuals and even as a community? So this is the question, or the questions, that I'd like us to ask ourselves as we now jump into the book of Acts. Okay. Very end of chapter 17. He's just finished preaching Jesus and the resurrection at the Areopagus, and it says in verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. So he shot west across Greece towards Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. 
Uh, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Let's pause there. Now, for sake of time, we're not going to read through the entire chapter of Acts, but I think it will be helpful. I want to actually map out what happens next. So we're going we're to look at a bit of geography. So, Paul started in Athens. He cut west to Corinth, which is where we're going to go next, um, which is where he met a couple of Jewish friends, Aquila and Pontus, um, fellow tent makers. He stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half, 18 months, reasoning in the synagogue. In fact, if we read on um, into verse 5, it says that Paul uh, reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues until eventually they got a bit annoyed with him and began to oppose them. And eventually Paul left the synagogue and it said that he went to Titus Justus or Titius Justus's house, which funny enough happened to be right next door to the synagogue. I love that. He continues debating, reasoning with, proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection of Corinth for 18 months until eventually the Jews make a united assault on Paul and they gang up and they drag him before the tribunal. It says that um, Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia, which is the wider region of Corinth, was presiding over the tribunal, and they brought Paul before him, accusing him, saying that he was stirring up trouble, inciting riots, as, as if he was like a vicious criminal. The Roman proconsul, uh, Galileo, because you really need to know that, was like, look, I cannot be bothered what you guys are talking about has nothing to do with Roman law. If it had anything to do with the empire, maybe I'd listen, but you guys sort this out among yourselves. This is something to do with your little weird religion. The Jews became so outraged that they grabbed the, the ruler of the synagogue in that region, a guy named Sophanes, and they drug him before the proconsul and started to beat him just to get his attention. This is what scholars refer to as proper drama. Mm -hmm. Eventually, after 18 months, Paul says, right, time to get out of Corinth. So he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him, and he goes across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. He continues to go to the local synagogue. He reasons with the Jews. He's proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. The debate continues. Some people believe. Others reject him. Everywhere he goes, there's conflict. There's controversy. Some people are believing him. Some people revile him. But he continues on. Now, this is important because in Ephesus, Paul ends up parting ways on good terms. He leaves behind his friend, Aquila and Priscilla here. So let's put A and P stay in Ephesus. And from there, he gets on a boat and he heads back to Caesarea. From Caesarea, he heads down to Antioch, 
which is probably where the apostle Peter was at, and he sort of regroups with his sending church, and eventually from Antioch, starts to make, make his way back, backtracking his missionary route, visiting all of the churches, all of the believers that he had led to Jesus along the way. Now, this is all important, because as we read on, a character, a rather mysterious character, appears on the scene. That's what we're going to go to next. Just keep that in mind. Let's go to the next slide. It's chapter 18, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he was Greek, um, or a Jewish, uh, Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenist, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. What is that? We'll get to that in just a second. Verse 26, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, Apollos arrives on the scene in Ephesus, sort of picks up where Paul left off, as it were. Clearly, Aquila and Priscilla go to one of his talks. They think this guy's eloquent. He's fervent in spirit. He's well-versed in the scriptures. He understands with accuracy the ways of Jesus. But they felt compelled to pull him aside and say, Apollos, brother Apollos, what you're doing is great. This is wonderful. You're for Jesus. You're one of us. But we'd like to explain to you the ways of God a bit more accurately. What is that? You know, it's possible to have an accurate working knowledge of the ways of Jesus and to still miss something extremely important. It's possible to have a working knowledge of the Christian way of life but completely lack any kind of actual experience of the Christ-like life. How so? What does this mean? I thought a lot about this. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't a mess. Don't get nervous. This isn't a message where I'm going to try to convince you all that no one here is actually saved and you, you think you know Jesus, but like, hold on because you don't know anything yet. This is not that message. That's not a helpful message. But I want us to think through this big question. What is the more accurate way of God? And... and If Apollos, who was clearly on Jesus' side, clearly for Jesus, even proclaiming the ways of Jesus with accuracy, yet he only knew the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla had to pull him aside and say, hey, brother Apollos, let us explain to you the way 
of God more accurately. He was missing something. What was it? I, I would compare it to me, personally, going to a big sporting event and looking around at all of the super fans and seeing them like going wild for their team, like genuinely excited, genuine passion. And me, for whatever reason, maybe it's my upbringing, maybe it's just like I have this weird thing, maybe it's just that I am like really bad at sports, and I look at the super fans and I think you're obviously excited about something and I feel like I should be too, but I just don't quite get it. Like, I want to be excited, I want to feel what you're feeling, but I'm, there's, there's just like a disconnect. I've tried. I've tried so many times to connect and to be like a fan, find my sport, find my team. I took Isaac to a Timbers game for the first time. Uh, Kate bought us tickets to see the Timbers, Kate Horman, last year for my birthday, and I brought Isaac, and it was a lot of fun. I have to tell you, of all of like, the, the professional sporting events I've ever been to, that was probably up at the top. But still, there was this like, disconnect. I'm like, man, like these, I mean, the Timber Army, these guys are wild. Even if like, you don't like soccer at all, you look at them, you're like, I wish I liked soccer. <laughs> because this just, they're really getting into this. Like, what are they so passionate about, and what am I missing that they've clearly got? One time, I went to uh, an NBA basketball game, and I have to say it was probably the one sporting event where I think I got it. Um, it was the Miami Heat. This was back in, I think it was 2000, 2001. Yeah, 2001. Me and my two buddies decided to uh, take a road trip across country from LA to Miami. And uh, we happened to know my buddy knew, more so, uh, one of the, the players for the Miami Heat. You guys remember A.C. Green? No? Okay, so. A.C. Green, let me just drop the name right, that no one recognizes. <laughs> trying to impress you guys. A.C. Green played for the Lakers uh, back in the 80s. He was, he was one of the, the, the starting five lineups. Like, so when the Lakers were winning championships back in the 80s, he started with uh, like Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, these guys, right? He was a big deal. Um, can we go to the next slide? Here's my man, A.C. Dunking over the head of Michael Jordan. So, <laughs> A.C. Green happened to be a part of the church when I got saved in 1999. I got plugged into this little church and we met in a high school cafeteria. It was nasty. <laughs> but it was great. And I met Jesus and it was awesome. And I, I can remember the, for my first Sunday there, I look around and I'm like, who's this like, black dude like, like almost like head hit, hitting the ceiling? He was totally out of place. And someone was like, oh, like he, that's, that's AC, he plays for the Lakers. I'm like, wow, okay, like that's, all right, awesome. A little starstruck. So in 2001, his final year in his career, he got traded to the Miami Heat. So we looked up AC, and we we're like, AC, we're driving to Miami. You think we can get tickets to the game? He was like, yeah, of course. 
So we go to see this game, and we're sitting in the VIP section at the, I don't know, I don't remember who they played or if they even won. But it was an awesome game because, because I knew the guy. It wasn't even about the game per se. It was about the guy. I remember uh, sitting in this little VIP section. AC comes out on the court. He's looking around. He looks over towards us. He's like, I look around and I'm like, what's up? <laughs> what's up, dog? My man. It was awesome. Afterwards, we met up after the game. We walked just a little, little ways together. We were kind of chatting. And, uh, and I realized the thing that made that game, that experience, so incredible, life-changing, as it were. Not really. It was that we, we knew the guy. We knew AC. AC, he was known as the Iron Man of the NBA. He played 1,192 games straight, consecutive. He didn't miss a single game in 15 years. He didn't get married until he was in his 40s. He was a virgin on his wedding day. He played for the Lakers. Like, watch a documentary. Like, you want to talk about miracles? That's just insane. The thing about getting in the game, experiencing the life of following Jesus, coming to church, getting around God's people, being on mission with the king, it's not so much the game, if you're trying to find like or muster up some sense of excitement that's not really actually there, I'll tell you what you're missing. It's not a love for the game. It's not a new passion for evangelism. It's not some sort of weird bent towards religion or religious things. The thing that's meant to be exciting about the Christian way of life is that we get to know the guy. We get to walk with and experience relationship with Jesus himself. And if for whatever reason you've not yet experienced that, or perhaps maybe you did, this is what happens oftentimes. We come into the family of God and we have this unreal experience and something happens in our heart. And then over time, we try to, we try to, continue sort of in the natural what we began in the spirit. We, we forget like what, what got us excited about Jesus in the first place. Or if you've never even experienced Jesus in that way yet, you might look around you and think, gosh, like these people are all really into their religious behavior. They're all really like seemingly morally upright people. Maybe if I could just, if I could get on track with that, then maybe I'll get it. Maybe I could get excited too. Maybe I could experience this life that I seem to be missing over and over and over again as I sit in my little chair and fall asleep every other Sunday morning. Could you imagine not missing a Sunday service for 15 years in a row? I aspire towards that. 
We're meant to experience a direct relationship with Jesus himself. Biggest Christian cliche out there. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard this? It's like one of those things after it's been preached a gajillion times, it, it just sort of loses its umph, and yet it's still totally, utterly true. Christianity was never meant to be Jesus' new religion on planet Earth. If anything, Jesus came to save us from religion so that we might experience real relationship with our God. That's what's exciting about all of this. The more accurate way of God beyond acquiring knowledge of him, even beyond repentance. You know what the baptism of John was? It said that Apollos, he he was eloquent, he, he knew the scriptures, but he only knew the baptism of John. This is a baptism of repentance. So when John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus, was on the scene, he started baptizing the people of Israel, saying, repent, Prepare yourself for your king. Only if you only know the baptisms of John, if you only know repentance, you only ever turn away from your old way of life. You only ever turn away from being your own God. And you forget to turn to Jesus. It's like getting baptized and like halfway through the dunking, the pastor forgets to like bring you up out of water. Like, that makes for a really bad baptism. It it brings new meaning to dying to self. (laughs) The quicker way to heaven. Okay, too far, too far. Beyond repentance, even beyond simply choosing to turn away from the old patterns of self-centeredness, sin, and shame. The more accurate way of God is to have met him. This is what Apollos was missing. He had not yet actually experienced a personal relationship with Jesus via the spirit of Christ. The more accurate way of God is to turn to him, to know him. It is to know his love which surpasses knowledge. To experience intimacy with him, it is to be filled with him. It is to be filled with all the fullness of God. I love how the Scottish theologian William Barclay put it. He said, Jesus is not someone just to remember. He is someone to meet and to experience. The message of the gospel The reality that God became man, that he humbled himself, he descended from heaven and became one of us and died for us because he loves us, isn't something we're simply meant to remember, although we are. We're not just to remember. We're to remember that Jesus is someone that we're meant to meet again and again and again and to experience over and over and over Amen. 
And the question is, I suppose for us, where are we at with that? Does that mean anything to you or does that just sound like, that's honestly, that's just weird. Let's just stick with the practical stuff. Well, we'd have to put our Bibles away if if that's what we're going to do. Because my friends, this, this is... I mean, this is the message. This is Acts. This is the Gospels. This is the, this is the scriptures from cover to cover. God with us. This is why it's so profoundly true to say that Christianity is not a religion. It's not simply a, a pattern for living. It's not just principles to be applied. It is the truth that God wants to actually interact with us. This is why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, refer to God as your father. The way of life, the Christ-like life, is that we might experience relationship with God as Jesus did, son to father. A kind of intimacy that we all long for. How does this happen in reality? God gives us his spirit. He, he gives us his spirit. Let's go to the next slide, please. It happened. Apollos has moved on. There's my chalk. He was in Ephesus. Apollos heads for Corinth. It happened that while Apollos left Ephesus, went up to Corinth... Paul passes through the inland country, so instead of taking a boat back, he cuts through Syria, and he came back to Ephesus. There, he found some disciples, presumably disciples of Apollos, converts of Apollos. And Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Like, what is that? This is like me, I grew up, uh, the church I, I grew up in, lovely church, wonderful church, Baptist church. In like 16 years of Sunday school, somehow I just managed to completely like miss the third person of the Trinity. Like I had no idea who or what the Holy Spirit was. Haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. We get repentance. We get that we're we're sinners, that we need to be saved. So we've been baptized in water. We've turned away from our sins, but we're kind of just like holding on for heaven. Not really sure what's supposed to happen next. And so Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, which is good. Telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this They were baptized in or into the name of the Lord Jesus. That means they were inducted into the family of God. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began to speak in tongues and prophesying. (laughs) They were about 12 men in all. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. The next time we see Apollos, 
in the scriptures. You know where he shows up again next? The only other place he actually shows up in the rest of the New Testament? Well, it's, it's right where we left him. It's in Corinth. If you flip a few pages over, you get to 1 Corinthians. This is where we find Apollos next. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church that's now been established in Corinth, and he's telling them, he's explaining to them, you know, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with eloquent words of wisdom. I came to you in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And he emphasizes the point, guys, this is what I'm talking about. This isn't about trying to obey certain rules. This isn't about adhering to the new religion. This is about a direct, personal, powerful experience of God, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ. I love the way Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, first three chapters, does not malign Apollos. Doesn't bash him. Doesn't say like the dude was an idiot. He, had no, he didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. Okay, his converts were weak. Doesn't say any of that. He's actually very, he, he's very honoring of Apollos. And he says, look, he, he planted, I watered. It's all about Jesus. It's all about an actual experience of the king who lives. The Holy Spirit, God with us, present, speaking, moving, working, healing, leading, convicting, freeing. This is like the most basic Christian sermon you will ever, ever hear in your life. This is Christianity 101. That Jesus saved us that we might know him. And in that relationship, the game makes sense. This stuff is actually fun. I now know why I'm supposed to be excited about the things that God is excited about. I don't have to just try to fake it on Sundays anymore. Like, I'm feeling it. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured into my heart. You know, it's funny, if you read on in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. And the church in Corinth was weird because they had a lot of issues. Some of them were apparently like really into like the Holy Spirit. Okay, they were like, like, like Bethel on steroids, crack, like, right? Like, and I love Bethel, right? But they were into it, man. They were like, look, let's just get gifts going. Let's tongues, prophecy, like no limit. Some of them were like, hey, y'all need to chill out. Okay, this is getting crazy. People are showing up at our church on Sunday. They're freaking out. They're leaving. They're not coming back. Let's get some order here. So Paul is talking through all of this. He's emphasizing the, the importance, the essentiality I think that's a made-up word, of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he says, now I want to tell you guys about the most excellent gift. You want to talk about gifts of power. You want to talk about manifestations of the Spirit of God. Let me tell you about the most 
excellent gift. And he talked about all the other ones. He's like, you really want, you want the, the good stuff? You want to experience the unadulterated, raw power of God? Let me tell you about love. That's, that's where we're getting into the real realm of power. Love. When God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. The kind of love that empowers us to love like Jesus, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who abuse us, to love our enemies. Guys, I am convinced that this is what changes the world. This is how a city is transformed. This is how barriers of racial division are broken down. This is how we experience freedom from fear. This is how we're able to forgive those who shouldn't be forgiven. Love. This is how the world knows that we belong to Jesus, that we're his disciples, by the way we love each other. This is what happens when we have an actual experience, a direct encounter with Jesus, the living God. It looks like the man or woman who, despite all the pain and injustice in our broken world, has learned the art of freely receiving and sharing God's life-altering love. The more excellent way, the greatest spiritual gift spoken of throughout the entirety of the scriptures is the gift of love. This is what we get when we experience actual relationship with Jesus. His spirit fills our heart and love is no longer an abstract concept. We're no longer talking about biblical data. We've now met the one. Can I invite the band to come up, please? I'd like to close by reading to you a prayer. I'd like to pray a prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. This is where he met the disciples. He said, look, we're down with Jesus. We've repented. We've turned to the king, but there's still a slight disconnect. And so Paul prays for them. He lays hands on them. They're filled with the spirit and something Something happens. And maybe we can have another sermon about tongues and prophecy. That's always a fun one. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But that's not the point of this story. 
The point is that they experience something that beyond mere words, beyond knowledge, even beyond emotion, I would add. Okay, this is not just a sermon on emotionalism. This is a sermon on experience, the reality of God and how we desperately need it. And this is the prayer that Paul prays for those Christians who are now part of the church in Ephesus. That's your cue to start strumming. (laughs) I'm just playing. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 